Hello, and welcome back to What Now on the Threshold of Life, Death, and Grief. I am here with my friends and colleagues. David Kennedy. And Red Keating. And I'm Julie Brown. And today we are delighted to have uh, a very special guest. Uh, we've heard her speak. We've read her book, all of us, a couple times. And... Um, that is Mary Frances O'Connor, and I am going to do the official read of her bio, and then um, we'll just jump right in. So Mary Frances O'Connor, PhD, she's an associate professor at the University of Arizona Department of Psychology, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab. She earned a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Arizona in 2004, and following a faculty appointment at UCLA, she returned to the University of Arizona in 2012. Her research focuses on the wide-ranging emotional responses to bereavement. In particular, she investigates the neurobiological aspects that vary between individual grief responses with functional neuroimaging. Dr. O'Connor believes that a clinical science approach towards the experience and physiology of grief can improve psychological treatment. So true. Her recent book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss, has received praise from peers and literary critics alike and has led to speaking engagements around the world. Welcome, Mary Frances. Well, thank you for having me. And it's, uh, I, I just on a personal note, I, I thank you so much for, for putting this book out there. At a little sideline, I was on vacation last um, fall and we were on a cruise, a river cruise. I, I had your book with you, me to do the first reading of it. And and I, I laughed at some of the, the comments or the looks I would get as yeah. I'd be sitting there reading this book and people wondering what it is this guy's <laughs> reading, you know, but but it was wonderful and thank you. Um, we, we like to start sometimes to, to just kind of get a little background of of you and and your work and what it was that kind of drew you into this work. We're always interested, especially around topic of grief and loss and and the neuroscience connection. Um, so maybe you can help us just understand a little bit about where you came to in finding this place. Well, I have always been fascinated by how the body sort of encodes the experiences around us. You know, how does the brain understand that this is my loved one? This specific person is is my loved one. And why does changes in that relationship cause such physiological responses? So there's a piece of me that's just that, you know, two-year-old that keeps saying, but why, but why? <laughs> um, and that really sort of spurred me on to the the professional side uh, of what I do, uh, the neuroscience and, and even clinical psychology side. But of course, you know, we all have loss experiences as well. And for me, my sort of the the shaping loss, I guess, in my life was that my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer when I was 13 years old. And I didn't know this then because I was a kid, but uh, apparently was not supposed to live through the year. And she did a, a year of chemo and all sorts of treatment. And it meant that I did know that grief came to our house. So 
being confronted with a terminal illness like that uh, in the family has a big impact. And so, you know, the miraculous thing is she did survive. She lived another 13 years. So she didn't die until I was in my 20s. But all of that time, I was very focused on what it meant to live with grief. And so, you know, as I started into my graduate studies, I just felt really comfortable with people who were grieving. You know, it just, it didn't shock me when they cried again and again. And uh, and hopefully that's given me some ability to sort of bring together that clinical understanding, that lived experience, and the sort of, you know, sterile neuroimages um, that I look at every day. Wow. I think uh, I appreciate so much that. And I think one of the things that we've discovered in all of this is, is that we are drawn usually to this area of grief through our own personal journeys. And it is the most natural human piece of that for sure. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. Yeah. And you, 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 you dressed it in the body, um, which I think is, is interesting because we all, if we've been grieving, we know it's an incredibly physical experience, Yeah, but what your writing does and what your book does is it really does ground what we would have normally seen as an emotional feeling, um, something sort of um, more nebulous maybe and 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 unknown. Uh, it really grounds it into and puts a basis for that those real feelings in our bodies. Um, yeah. And and it, you you sort of talk about this thing called the virtual brain map, and I think that's sort of where it really gets for me. It's where where it got grounded. Um, could you sort of let us in on what a virtual brain map is? <laughs> well, you know, I I use this example of uh, of your dining room table, uh, which I think connects for a lot of people. So, you know, the the funny part of this story, this metaphor, is you have to pretend that your dining room table has been stolen, which doesn't necessarily make any sense, but that's irrelevant. So if your dining room table has been stolen and you wake up one night and you realize you're thirsty and you're going to go get a drink of water and you, you know, it's dark in your house, you just walk down the hall because you're headed toward the kitchen and you walk through the dining room and, you know, when you hit where the dining room table should be, you actually have that weird sensation, right? Like that hole opens up where the dining room table should be. And that seems very hard to explain because we think of things in the world causing us to have sensations. And here is the absence of something causing a sensation. And I think that the reason that works so well as a metaphor for what we're experiencing when we lose a loved one is because we're constantly walking into rooms where our loved one should be, right? That we internally are having the experience that they should be in the room even if no one else is having that experience. And it changes the world that we're living in. We are carrying an absence with us. And so I think that virtual world that we are constantly carrying around with us, which we were actually carrying around before our loved one died as well. We, you know, how many of us are talking to our loved ones in our brain all the time? Oh, you know, I should check in, uh, see how that meeting went that they have today. But after a loved one dies, that inner dialogue doesn't go away necessarily. And so that's where the challenge lies, that you're living in a world where the person is not out there and yet they are in here 
And those two things conflict and cause us great distress, especially at first. Yeah, I like that idea that you're that bumping into the table is what you did every night when you'd go down to get a drink of water. And then that one time you're expecting it. And then when it's not, it's the, it's also a shock. Yes. It's a, it's a shock to the system. It really is. Yeah. I, I, I think for, for all of us who have been, you know, in this for years and heard the clients that we, we sit with, there's, there's always that piece that says, uh, I still talk to them and, and they kind of look at you like, I hope you don't think I'm crazy exactly. or, or is, am, is this something strange for me? But, yeah. but this kind of helps us understand why we, why we want to continue to talk to them. That's right. I mean, they are encoded in our brain and that encoding does not go away. And in fact, the whole point in many ways of having a bonded relationship with a loved one is so that you can go away from them. You can explore the world. You can go off to school or you can go off to, to work and you know they're still there, right? Like it's what gives you the capacity to go out and explore the world because you carry them with you. And they're, you know, cheerleading you when you're in that meeting that you're having with your boss. They're not physically present, but you know deeply that they are in there. They are rooting for you. And so the system, the encoded brain system is designed to believe they are there when they are not physically in your presence. That's the whole point, right? Mm. Well, that doesn't change instantaneously when they die right? They are still, we still have that implicit belief because that's how they're encoded. And so you have this desire to reach out to them, right? How many of us have had a client or done it ourselves, try to text the person who's died, right? <laughs> and then, you know, you're midway through it before you realize, oh, wait a minute, what am I doing? I can't, I can't talk. They're not going to receive this text. But it's because we continue to have that internal relationship. And, you know, as long as you don't think you're crazy, that can be a wonderful thing. I also, I, I loved the, before I'd ever read your book, often what I would say to clients to normalize this, the time that it would take, as I would often just say, your brain's just working really hard to process this, right? There's a lot it has to compute. And that was in reference to how often almost every client at some point just feels so frustrated with themselves yes. around how long it's taking, how long their grief is taking, that they're not feeling better yet, that they are not coping, you know, as they should. Yeah. And so, um, so it's, it's, it's very, so, I mean, I think that's what we're talking to about, yeah. right? Is that the brain is remapping itself. Yeah, that's right. There's so much that has to catch up, uh, I think was a term you used before. And I, I really, you know, I think of it sometimes as you're just on a learning curve, you know, and I, I think of grieving as a form of learning now. I mean, I really think mm. in some ways... <clears throat> That really describes what we're trying to do. And learning is often frustrating, right? I mean, I have students. I can tell you learning how, you know, learning how a neuron fires. What are all the parts and what are the what are the chemicals, right, that they have to learn to understand that? It's frustrating. They can't remember at first. They get confused. And that's a part of learning. It just is, right? If we learn to ride a bicycle, how many times did you fall off and think, 
I'm never going to get this. If I could just quote you to you, um, <laughs> you uh, there's a great quote I underlined on page 209. And then, and you said, when I say that grief is a kind of learning, I don't mean learning something easy. This is not like mastering a specific skill, such as riding a bike, learning how to keep our balance and how to use the brakes. This type of learning is like traveling to an alien planet and learning that the air cannot be breathed. And therefore you need to remember to wear oxygen all the time, or that the day has 32 hours, even though your body continues operating as though it has 24. Grief changes the rules of the game, rules that you thought you knew and had been using until this point. Yeah, it just impacts everything, doesn't it? And it and it is the... I mean, I think part of what's so challenging about grief is, you know, many of us get to our 40s before we have a really significant loss experience. Now, I mean, in some ways, that's obviously, I I mean, many people experience loss much younger than that. But if you get to your 40s, you kind of think you've got the thing worked out, right? This is how life works. And then you're faced with this impossible reality where this person is gone. It just doesn't make any sense. And the number of things that it affects is shocking and continues to surprise and distress us. I think that the learning also to what can make it more challenging is that it's actually a relearning. Um, And it's so hard to relearn something. Um, And like you said, the brain is firing in such a way that the old knowledge is the knowledge that's there and you're replacing it with new knowledge. And this is knowledge and learning that nobody wants. Right. right? I didn't sign up to go to school and learn this new thing because I want to do this career. This is, this is something I don't want. So I'm a reluctant learner too, or a potentially resistant learner because I don't want to learn what I have to learn. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sitting here thinking too of of uh, you know often grief when when the person who dies is is much older yes. and and the, you know the common phrase they that the griever gets told is well you know they lived a long life so as if your grief is not as intense right. and and <clears throat> listening to you and understanding and reading your book it validates what I've I've often said to clients is that that doesn't make your grief easier. Actually, you've you've had that many more years to develop that attachment and that relationship. So in many ways, that grief is is much more intense in certain ways. Now, that doesn't mean it's all going to work out differently. But uh, I think that that's, uh, you know, that that kind of easy pushing that people give in terms of if they're old and they die, then it, it's not going to be as hard for you. You know, I think when we're with people who are grieving, we will do anything to try and make it seem not as bad, right? I mean, I think our whole goal usually is to make them feel better, which we're not really very good at. But I think we try to come up with all the, you know, at least this or Mm -hmm. at least that. And, (laughs) you know, it's not very helpful usually. I and and also even for the person who is grieving I hear this often you know isn't the death of a child worse than the death of a spouse or you know whatever and someone once said to me you know the very worst grief you can experience 
is the one you're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. And so it doesn't, none of those things matter. Those are just sort of categories. But what matters is that you have this absence, you have this hole in you now, and you have to figure out how to keep putting one foot in front of the other, given this hole. You you mentioned uh, the three aspects of this, of this mapping of, you know, here, now, and close as being the three components of that thing. Can you, can you help us understand that a little bit? You know, this really genuinely came from knowing how the brain encodes different dimensions in our world. And so here and now is literally like the same as food being here and now. And it means that our brain is understanding, oh, well, if there's not food here, then I need to go find it. Or uh, when will I next be able to forage, you know, in in this part of uh, my territory? Those ways of adapting, of surviving in our world require the brain to keep track of where is our food and when will we eat next. Keeping track of our loved ones is equally important, as important to our survival, right? They, our loved ones, our attachments are as important to our survival as food and water. Yes. And and what that means is that we're constantly like if I said to you right now, you know, where's your spouse or how long would it take you to get to your child? You probably actually have a pretty good idea. You could give me an answer fairly quickly. And that means we're tracking them all the time. Right. Our brain in the background is keeping that here and now alive. The reason that I found it so important to add this dimension of closeness, and that is to say, you know, it's that very intuitive feeling. If I say, are you and your sister very close? You have some sort of intuitive dimensional answer for me. You know, we used to be closer and now, you know. The brain actually encodes closeness in a similar neural patterning that it encodes that it encodes the here and the now dimension right so i feel close to you that dimension is short i don't feel close to you you feel aloof or distant that dimension is long the reason that i think it's so helpful is in the same way that understanding we believe our loved one is out there even if they're not here right now, right? That we persevere in believing they're out there, that they have not disappeared in those dimensions, I think can be applied to closeness as well. And that is in the following way. If you think of your loved one who's died and you think, I'm not, I don't have that close feeling to them, then our natural reaction when we're not feeling close to a living loved one is, well, gosh, I should I should apologize for something I've done, right? Or I'm really angry with them, you know, for why haven't they called me? And those same reactions of guilt and blame, I think we feel sometimes to the person toward the person who's died. If we don't feel close to them, we continue to use that same encoding. If they if they're distant from us, then there must be a reason. And at some subconscious level, I'm not saying this is an overt, you know, logical 
line of thinking. But at some level, you're angry with them for leaving you or you feel terrible that they're gone, right? That you should do something to make it up to them. And, and so those feelings, I think, persist. And because they're so illogical, it can be hard for us to sort of sort them out. And, and I think you, you comment that, and I like this, is that when, when we're searching for that person, let's say, uh, in grief, that isn't necessarily a denial yeah. of the situation. It's, it's, a, it's a testament to the disorientation that we're experiencing from that person not being here now and close yeah, and how that turns our world upside down. That's right. You know, the funny thing is we think of the brain as one thing, but there are actually many systems in the brain, it turns out. So we do have that memory system, right? We can recall being there, being at the bedside when a loved one died or being at the memorial or funeral, right? We know we can recall the reality that we're living in. We aren't crazy. That memory system is, is working just fine. But this attachment system is also a system in the brain that is active and is delivering a different answer. So in those moments where you confront the fact that both can't be true, they can't both be out there and have been through a funeral, in those moments, it's that distress of, well, how how do I understand this then? And that's part of what takes time. Your brain is actually good at learning. It will update its understanding if we give it time, but also experiences, right? If we actually interact in our world so that our brain says, oh, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm not putting their laundry away anymore. You know, if we give ourselves the experiences to understand this is what life is, our brain will adapt over time. And that's that patience we just, we have to have with ourselves. And patience is sometimes hard to find in yeah. those moments. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, you know, I've just recently started talking about this, but there's a, in many, um, in many indigenous cultures, there is a tradition uh, where people wear their hair long and they, and they cut it short when a loved one dies. Yeah. And the part that I, the part that I love about that is think how long it takes your hair to grow. And that's a totally normal, natural process, right? You can't wish your hair to grow any faster. And it's somehow also this visual recognition of where you are, kind of. This is taking a long time. And that's just how it goes. And and that that just brings up so much of the the challenge of, of grief in our cultures where we have removed those outward expressions of grief that and and you're that that you're absolutely right, that indigenous the haircutting, and I, I've worked with clients in that and um, but but other ways that cultures, European cultures have have had an outward expression that that took a long time for it to come. But we've 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 tried to pretend that nothing changes uh, after after someone we love dies. And we try to make life as normal as possible. But the brain, the brain isn't going to let us do that very well. That's for sure. One of the challenges, and I am not a sociologist, to be fair. So this is this is just me talking. 
I think one of the challenges has been that many of those traditions, many of those outward marks, right, that I am a person who is grieving, were associated with religious traditions. And many, many people do not retain the same religious beliefs that they did growing up. And so what it means is, along with losing the sort of uh, beliefs that come with that religious um, system, the traditions are sort of lost as well. And one of the things I found most fascinating is that people will say to me, the book, The Grieving Brain, it gave me a way to think about grief other than a religious experience, expression, a religious, you know, uh, uh, lens. And I think that's important. I think to understand something, we have to, you know, we have to have some general belief about why or how. And I think that there are ways that we can look to how the brain understands the world as a way of still saying you need to take time, right? There's a reason that you need to take time. It doesn't have anything to do with religion. It just has to do with that's how it works for human beings. Whereas in our culture now, it's a lot of, well, it's time to get over it. You know, you get, you got to get past this. You got to get beyond it. You've got to move on. Um, and those comments come uh, and, and like, we, I think we, we've talked about this before. They can be quite hurtful um, because the brain is still disoriented. It's still trying to figure out this new world, this new understanding and, and integrate the reality of that loss into the life that I'm living today. Yeah. And so then, and this is what I so appreciated about the book. It's like, I think of to the clients who, you know, I mentioned the word patience, yeah. where they're feeling so impatient with themselves, they in this idea of I should be somewhere different on this journey. And your book so validates, no, your brain just needs the time to, yeah. to remap to do this learning piece. Yeah. Can you talk to us about intrusive thoughts and rumination you're um those of us who work with uh you know where people are seeking out help you know we spend a lot of time on this in sessions is the what ifs dealing with intrusive thoughts um yeah yeah Yeah. so this is sort of a hallmark isn't it of of what grief you know is it brings to your mind often And there are many flavors of the thoughts that go round and round and round in our head. But one very common flavor of grief-related thoughts is what uh, a man I know whose son died by suicide calls the would've, should've, could've thoughts. And that's just what you were describing, this, this, you know, endless set of possibilities that our brain in its wondrousness can come up with. If only I could have gotten them to the hospital sooner or or the doctor should have known to run another test or, you know, if only they would have, you know, worn their sh- belt. Yeah. yeah. I should yeah. have advocated more. Yeah. I should have gotten a second opinion. Yeah. Or yeah. even I should have been more patient, you know, with them while they were ill or yes. but here's the here's the thing. There are an infinite number of those, right? There are absolutely, and if you think about each of those stories, if you really think about it, each of those stories that we tell ends in, and then my loved one would have lived. Yes. And the problem is, 
your loved one didn't live. And that is the painful reality that we have to grapple with. And by living in all those other worlds where your loved one would have lived means you're not living in the present reality where you have to carry their absence around, but also create, restore a meaningful life, right? And so I sometimes think about, it's not about whether the thought is true or not. Would they have lived? That's really not relevant. The question is, is this thought, are these rumination sessions, are they helping you? Are they helping you to be in this moment with your your grandson, you know, who's trying to tell you this crazy story about monsters, you know, or is it helping you in this moment when the the person at the coffee shop gives you this really nice smile and you don't even notice because you're so wrapped up in what's going on in all those other virtual worlds. So, I think this same this same fella who whose son had died said he finally realized there was no going through the questions. There was no going through the questions to get an answer. He had to find a way to go around the questions to let the questions fall away. And then in the falling away is the kind of purity, the rawness of that grief. That's right. Of the absence of that closeness of the here and now. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is the thing. There is that moment that is just despair in that, despair. right? I mean, in that painful reality moment where it is true that this loved one has died, but that isn't the end of the story either, right? There's that despair, but the despair suggests, and I will never feel any differently than I do right now. Right. But that's not reality either. We will carry that absence and also have living loved ones, right? We will feel grief and also joy and love and creativity and all of those other things that are possible in the present moment. And that's where I feel like for those of us supporting people in the rawness of that grief, sometimes I know my message is, is it won't always feel this way, but it does right now. Yeah. Right. So it's like validating this is where we are. This is where we are. We need to make space for that. And I can also hold the hope that it will change because in your despair, you don't believe it will, which I understand. Yep, absolutely. One of my clinical graduate students likes to talk about the both and. Yeah, yeah. That, mm. that this is true. And also it will not always be true. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I like to think of this as sort of lending someone your hope. I know you can't see yet what your life will look like. And I don't know what your life will look like, but I do know that we will get there together, that together we will figure out how you can have a life that does include this absence and also includes a whole lot of other things. But I think that's exactly right. Both validating this is where you are and that's okay. That's okay. And also, yeah. That takes a lot of courage to sort of, lay down your armor, you know, lay down those defenses of, you know, avoiding or distracting yourself with your ruminations. Right. Um, And that, that alone is, you know, to be celebrated in one way, because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to knowingly invite this pain in. Yeah. 
You know, yeah. I'm going to invite this, this suffering, this sadness, this sorrow. Uh, I'm going to invite it in. And what we don't realize is that by doing that, you that might be the key of setting yourself free. That's right. And, you know, what I think is so hard to hear when you're a person who's grieving is you think, I'm in pain all the time. I'm inviting this in, you know, like this is, I feel grief all the time. What are they talking about? But I think there is something about, there's something about accepting that is different. And the best way I can put my finger on it is there's a way in which you can accept that this is be in a moment where you're accepting this is the reality and it is very painful and not trying to do anything about it. You're not trying to understand it. You're not trying to make it fit in a box. You're not trying to, you're not wondering how long it's going to last. You just are accepting. So it's almost like not even necessarily inviting maybe. I mean, you know, we could use all sorts of words. I don't mean it that way, but just this sort of calmness of here it is. Here's yeah. the reality. And and you're right. There is something transformative sometimes about that. Yeah. Yeah. I like to talk about the idea of just sitting in our grief and that, yeah. that imagery of, yeah. of sitting it with it. That's uh, right. Um, just a question I have um, as you were talking there. Does the brain react differently to the type of death? So mm. we have... We have this sudden, unexpected death. We have the, you know, the, the prolonged period of a cancerous journey. So how does the brain respond differently when death is different like that? Yeah. You know, the, the short answer, of course, is that we don't know in that we have so few neuroimaging studies yet that that has not been compared. Hmm. But what I can tell you is that well, I can tell you two things. So there is a lot of research that's been done um, looking at people who have experienced sudden losses and looking at people who have uh, had a longer death trajectory. And so what we know from that really detailed sort of clinical uh, research is that having a sudden loss does often create uh, a, a, an acute grief that is very intense, right? Like if your brain wasn't expecting it at all, that's a whole other level than you had sort of at least contemplated the fact that this might happen. But what's interesting about that, you know, sudden grief, a sudden death can be a, a risk factor for having a more prolonged grieving experience that the severity goes on for longer. But it is also very clear that the majority of people who have a sudden death also go on to restore a meaningful life for themselves. And so, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around how both of those things could be true. It can be a risk factor and still mean that the majority of people do not um, have complications just because the death was sudden. Yeah. You... You reference you used a term. Um, it made a lot of sense to me. Chronic grievers for those where it isn't don't kind of have a normal trajectory. And what do we know based on what's happening in the brain, or do we know about what's different for mm -hmm. those folks? 
So the term that I would use now is, is prolonged grief. It's not even necessarily my favorite term, but it is the term that the field has finally settled on. So yeah. you'll hear chronic grief and complicated grief, and uh, it was just all getting very confusing. And so we use the term prolonged grief right now. But I think that the term is misunderstood. So the idea is that there is a very small proportion of people, maybe one in 10 bereaved people, who experience this prolonged uh, grief. And what I mean by that is most of us over time and with experience, we see a reduction in the intensity and frequency of those waves of grief. Or, or we even just get better at handling them, right? We know how to reach out for comfort in those moments or we tell ourselves, I, this is familiar. I know what this is. It hasn't taken me by surprise, right? So the vast majority of us have that experience. There is a group who about a year out from the loss, right? That if they are continuing to respond to the loss as though it's acute, right? With the same waves, the same intensity, not restoring, you know, not being able to get through their day, it's not that other people, it's not that their grief has gone away by a year. That's not reality for anyone. But we can see that for many people, there's been change over time. And that means there will probably continue to be change over time. For that small group of people where there hasn't been much change after a year, we can also predict that there won't be much change over time. And that is a good indication that it's probably worth having some professional interaction, right? Whether that's a, a counselor, a psychologist, a pastor, uh, you know, whomever, to address some of the things getting in the way, the barriers that are preventing that more natural trajectory that we expect. So many people sort of dislike this idea that there's a group who might be having a prolonged grief experience or the way that we might diagnose that. And I have to say, I come from a hospice background, and initially I was quite skeptical myself, right? Everyone has grief. It's unique for everyone and so forth. And one of the first neuroimaging studies that I did, I looked at, you know, I had asked people, how much have you been yearning for the person who's died? And so they answered that on a scale, you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then I looked at the parts of the brain that were correlated with how severe that response was. And there was a very specific part of the brain that was reacting when the people were describing more yearning. It's called the nucleus accumbens, which isn't interesting for anyone except for a neuroscientist. But the point is that we know that nucleus accumbens is encoding motivation for lots of really important things in our life. And so it's almost that you can see that that person who's having this prolonged grief experience is showing a different response in the world. Their brain is reacting differently. And, and that's okay. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them, but it might mean that there are things that we could offer to help them get to a place where the yearning is not completely disabling for them. Hmm. And so the yearning seemed to, from what I could pick up in your book, seemed to be a real component. Of course, we all have 
yearning is a normal response, Absolutely. of course, right? And that's that closeness, that attachment. Um, but there seems to be something more intense or prolonged for those who struggle with the prolonged grief condition. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the way it seems, because you're absolutely right, yearning is going to emerge, you know, for years after a loved one has died. If, you know, if I'm in the middle of, uh, I don't know, if I'm in the middle of making dinner and, you know, I suddenly recognize, oh gosh, I'm making that dish my mom used to make, right? In that moment, I probably am going to feel that yearning. And it's been 20 years, you know, and that's totally normal. What seems to be different in people who are really struggling is that 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 would then derail their day, right? Like they wouldn't be able to go on making dinner or they would just, you know, sort of turn off all their feelings because it was too painful and they would just kind of go numb. Um, There's a host of ways it can be problematic, but that kind of yearning also, I think, has to do with for us to want things to be the way they were, for us to want someone back. It means that we also mustn't be enjoying the present very much. And often I think it's as much about how are we creating a life right now as it is, how are we handling something that happened before? And that, you know, in the book, I tell this story and I and I tell it often about the man, the older man who had married his high school sweetheart. I'll tell a sort of short version of it. Uh, had a marvelous marriage. She got sick and died of breast cancer and he cared for her. And as he's telling me this story, he, you know, he he cried. It had been about three years, I think. And then he told me that he'd been going out to dinner with this woman who was really different from his wife, but that he was sort of enjoying going out to dinner with her, that she brought out a side of his humor that he had kind of forgotten that he had. And he was just sort of enjoying it. He didn't really know what that meant, but And he looked at me and he said, the thing is, it was really good then. And it's really good now, you know? And that to me is integrating grief into your life. You can cry, you can miss them. And also you have a life that you're enjoying now. And I I really appreciated, uh, it it resonated with me when I read that piece where you you use the idea of um, of uh, friends of somebody who's uh, who's grieving, encouraging them to come out. Oh, you know, come come out and do social things. Yeah. And and we all struggle with. On on one side, I understand that um, that often people are doing that more for their own benefit. Uh, they they need to know the person is okay. But at the same time, I really did appreciate that idea that. There's times when that can be helpful because it it brings them into the now. It forces them to say, this is life where I am now. And and yet even doing that, it's not one or the other. It's the caring of both in a way that allows them to be present without feeling like they're forgetting or 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 somehow shaming that piece. Um, so I did appreciate that. And, I, and it's caused me to stop and think there may be occasions where that that that's a very appropriate uh, invitation for somebody 
That's right. I think having, you know, a whole toolkit of responses is, mm -hmm. is so important. And I give that example, you know, if you have a, a, a child who falls down on the, on the playground and you're sitting on the bench, you know, near them, and sometimes it is the right thing. You go and you scoop them up and you kiss them and, and tell them you understand how much it hurts. And that is a totally appropriate response. And sometimes you stay where you are on the bench and you say, come on. You can do it. It's okay. You're okay. Go on, get up. You can do it. Go down again. Try it again. And that's also a perfectly appropriate response. So, I mean, there's no rule about what to do mm. when. There just isn't, sadly. Um, but I can say that sometimes people say that time heals. And I think that's actually slightly uh, misunderstanding. So it's experience that heals. Now experience takes time, so it's not wrong, right? But but if we don't have the experience of being in the, just as you said, of being out in the world and, and allow our brain to understand, okay, this is what it feels like. This is what's happening. Then we don't get a chance to understand the present has all these possibilities, including the painful ones, but also including the interesting and enjoyable ones. I often use the the uh, the illustration if you you know if you fall and you break your arm and it's a very bad break and and I just say to you oh give it six weeks it'll be okay time time will look after that uh, that six weeks later we'd be in a real mess yeah um, if you go and get it set and then cast and and get it looked after while you were experiencing life. Yes. Then yeah, six weeks later, you can take that cast off. It will be different, but you're absolutely right. Time by itself is not the answer, yeah. but that's often how people tend to view that. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it does take so much courage. Um, in the book, I tell the story about the the woman whose husband dies quite suddenly and she has a baby um, and she tells herself, I can only think about this. I can only contemplate this for two minutes. Yeah. I can only allow that awareness in for two minutes, but tomorrow I will let it in for four minutes. Yeah. And the next day I will let it in for eight minutes. And so it doesn't have to be on her time schedule, but my point is it's okay to have those moments of avoidance, be in denial. Sometimes your body and your brain need a break, but also find a way to be courageous, ask for support. I really need to go and buy, you know, I don't know. I need to clean out the closet and I can't do it. Will you come and help me? Will you just come and sit here while I can't get through it? <laughs> um, be courageous. Uh, and and you will dis it will give your brain a chance to learn that that life is worth it. I, I think too, it's hard um, uh, for for people in who are younger who have experienced a grief, who have other responsibilities, young children they have to look after, work. A lot of people, you know, it's fine to say, "Oh, take time off work," but they don't have that process. So that that need to say. I can compartmentalize this. I'm going to be to work. I can do that, but I have to provide time for my grief when I get home. And if I don't, if I don't do that, then I'm really going to be in trouble. But I, I, I need to have both of those pieces in my life. Yeah. I know this is a big topic and a big question to ask towards the end of our time together, but 
I think it's important just to mention you you speak in the group in the book about grief and depression and the difference yeah. because it often gets confused and yeah. you know we end up sometimes medicating people or people will say I don't think it's grief I think I'm actually depressed or my you know so and so is worried that I'm depressed and not grieving and even though you know I may see it as quite normal so can you just take a few moments yeah. to comment on that absolutely um it is it is confusing part of what's confusing is of course you can have both yeah just like you can have depression and anxiety no one is surprised that someone has both depression and anxiety it turns out that we can have prolonged grief and depression but there are people where grief is the only issue and there are also people where depression is the only issue and so you know i i mentioned this in the book but after my mother died I didn't actually have prolonged grief. I didn't uh, struggle in that way, but I did have depression. And I can tell you from research studies that what we know now is that antidepressants do help with depression symptoms, even in bereavement, if the person has depression. What we also know is that that, that antidepressant is not helping with things like yearning, right? So depression has this quality that it sort of affects everything in your life, right? It it makes you feel guilty, like you're not doing enough in, in every domain and you're worried about everything. And, and grief really is about the person who's died. So even if you're feeling guilt, it's about the relationship with the person who died. Depression does not have yearning as a symptom, right? It's, <clears throat> it's, it's just not how it is. And so I think even discovering that there may be different neural circuits that are uh, contributing to depression and to grief. And some people probably have some challenges with both circuits, but that for some people, it is just one or the other can be helpful. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. I think also the, the thing to remember is you had a whole mental health life before the person died. So I had had uh, uh, an episode of depression before my mom died. And so that predicts mental health challenges upcoming, right? And so I think as a clinician, it's also really important to ask about personal history and, and family history uh, of other mental health problems because that can, I mean, that's not certainly going to give you the answer, but uh, it can it can help to you to understand how does this feel the same? How does this feel different from what you've experienced before? One of the other questions that I had is uh, you speak about our grief with famous people. Mm -hmm. And this is just something I have just found so fascinating when you watch the outpouring and the very sometimes intense grief people have for people they've never met. But you do a good job of talking about how that's also part of um, that brain mapping because the person. So anyways, I'll let you explain it. There, I shouldn't <laughs> be explaining it. <laughs> This is something in psychology we call parasocial grief. And the idea is, I mean, it really came from the idea that you can develop these parasocial relationships. When we binge watch a show for days and days and days, or weekly, you know, for years in some cases, we feel connected to that character. We feel connected to who they are. And to the degree we might feel connected to a musician or a poet or even a politician, it can be because 
they have spoken to us directly, right? Like they are able to put into words or music or policy something we feel so deeply. And so that, the depth of that connection, if that person dies, means that we are in the world then without that person who was able to express who we were, who we are. And that is a real loss. Um, the, the way I think about it is, you know that if it you know that it's grief if it feels like there's some part of yourself that has died along with the person and so you know for many of us it's a musician that we listen to in college right or in high school where we're losing a little piece of ourselves as well that person who who was you know in that music at that time we're losing a piece of ourselves in that way so it is it is fascinating but it but i think it is genuine well, I must say, um, I'm looking at the clock here and thinking, oh, my, <laughs> that hour has gone by very quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to say I'm overwhelmed in a great way in in how um, thick and rich uh, the book is that you've written and how it speaks to so many aspects of what Julie and David and people like ourselves and yourself uh, sort of experience in reality with people in a room every day yeah. and and what I, my one of my big takeaways is that i don't know how many times i've heard people say i think i'm losing my mind At, can you tell me if i'm crazy mm -hmm. and it's like what this book does is it just lets people go no you're not no. crazy you're experiencing something really real on a physical biological level that it's attached to your emotions and you are trying to relearn how to be in this world and you can't recreate the world of the past. You know, I, and I'm going to think about a little bit back in the conversation, that sense of if I force myself to go out when I don't feel like it, um, I might find that I actually have fun yeah. and I might feel guilty about that at the start. But if yeah. I do that enough and give myself enough time to have those experiences, yeah. then maybe I'll realize that joy is possible again. Right. Maybe yeah. I'll realize that relationships with people are fulfilling again. Yeah. But if I cloister myself and, and, and live inside that space and yeah. I don't give myself the, the opportunity to have those experiences, then I'm going to stay in that place longer. Yeah. And the nice thing about it is, I don't know how many times I do this in, the, in a session. I'm, what, mm -hmm. I'm holding my hands together like I'm praying and I'm flipping them over. You can have both sides at the same time. You can be sad and you can have fun. Yeah. It, one doesn't cancel out the other yeah. and shouldn't cancel out the other. It's about learning how to live with that sort of dichotomy or that sort of world of opposites as we want to see them. But these basically, they're not opposite. They're just two halves of the same whole. Right. Uh, and and the, the takeaway from me was really sort of that in, but in so many different aspects of human experience. So it was absolutely wonderful. And I just want to end my little bits of comments with a little quote from the end of the book that you say, for those around people who are grieving, um, cheering them up isn't the goal, right? It's yeah. being with them that's the goal. And we just recorded a um, a podcast on the language around living with a terminal illness or a life-threatening illness and li living with people who are bereaved. And, and wow, <laughs> what what took us 40, 45 minutes to talk about you just summed up in a couple sentences. And I, I just <laughs> loved that. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I want to say thank you so much for, uh, for first of all, the book and, and 
I have found it, um, it was so validating as I read it, but also uh, uh, so hopeful in the sense that this is a whole new area of study, the whole neurology piece and neuroscience. And, and it's exciting because we now have opportunities to explore things that we've not had before. And thank you that there are for people like you uh, who are who are willing to venture into that area and help us, and that that brings me to the other part. Your book is so readable, and mm. I I have I have sent it to to some of my colleagues across the country in Canada, saying, "Hey, you got to read this book," and I know that they'll be really listening to this podcast. But it's readable, not just at a at the professional level. It's readable to people in grief, and I I really thank you for the effort that that you've taken to write this book and thank you for today too that means a lot to me for me too yeah thank you for all <laughs> your contributions and having this conversation with us today what a pleasure well and and thanks to each of you because it is you know you are the people who are willing to sit in the room and and really just be present and and that means that means everything Thanks for listening to What Now? On the Threshold of Life, Death, and Grief. What Now? is produced in partnership with Hospice Peterborough. Music by Paradise Garage. Technical support provided by Sean and Jonah Heikert. What Now? is recorded at Thin Spaces Studio. You can find more episodes of What Now? for free on most major podcast platforms, including Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, and Overcast. If you want to support us, please follow and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends, it does make a difference.